Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This week, we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam as usual, and then I talked to Brian Lee Jr., who's an architect, a design justice advocate, and director of Colocate, a design justice nonprofit located in New Orleans. We are challenging the privilege and power structures that use architecture and design as a means to perpetuate injustice throughout the built environment. With the acknowledgement that for every injustice in this world, there is an architecture that has been built to facilitate and perpetuate. And remember, tickets to our live shows in Chicago and Minneapolis are officially available now. The mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, will be joining me on stage for an interview and will be announcing our Chicago guests soon. So go get your tickets at cricket.com slash events. Now, the other day, I posted this on Instagram, a picture of me in a tree. My really good friend, Cleo Wade, was having an Are You OK booth in a park in L.A., I went to go visit her, and while I was there, I climbed up into a tree. It was a big tree, and one of my friends was like, you can do it. And I was like, we didn't have trees around where I grew up in Baltimore to climb in. But I climbed in the tree, and it was cool to climb a tree. But I had a million excuses for why I wasn't going to climb this tree. I was like, I don't think I'm on the right shoes. I am going out tonight. I'm going to get my pants dirty. Like, I think I might get hurt. There's all these like things that were like, yeah, climbing this tree is not going to be the thing today. And then I climbed it and was like, happy I climbed it. It was simple. It was cool to be in a tree. And I totally get why people get rushes from climbing things and climbing trees. It was a reminder to me of like all the excuses that we make not to take risks, not to do things that might be outside our comfort zones. So my message this week is to climb more trees, like walk towards the things that are a little risky. And remember that it's not the absence of fear that's the goal. It's making sure that fear isn't the only thing and not the biggest emotion in the space. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith Third. Aye, And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. I don't know about you all, but I took the news of John Singleton's passing pretty hard. I think it was because I realized that my dad was the one who showed me a lot of his films. When my mom refused to let a girl my age watch rated R films, my dad would sneak me to the important stuff, which included Boys in the Hood and Higher Learning. And I'm thankful that he did. But John Singleton, of course, was the famed Oscar-nominated director who was not only key to ensuring that Black stories were being told at the rate that they are now, but was also responsible for a lot of the first feature film experiences for stars like Regina King, Ice Cube, and others. He passed away after complications from a stroke at age 51. Yeah, it was really, uh, really sad to see. This week, I've kind of been revisiting a lot of John Singleton films. And last night, I watched Boys in the Hood for the first time. And maybe like a decade. And, it, you know, seeing young Cuba Gooden Jr. on there, seeing the young Lawrence Fishburne, seeing young Ice Cube. It was just, what I appreciated about it is that it was presenting a range of different characters in this community, a range of different characters with a range of different personalities, a range of different ways of thinking about the world within the dialogue itself between the male characters, between the the men and the women. Like it was exploring a lot of the manifestations of sexism. It was exploring internalized racism. It was exploring structural and systemic race. I mean, so he was, I realize now watching it as a 30-year-old and not a younger version of myself, that he was exploring so many themes in his work that speak to the sort of larger condition of what it means to be Black in America. And he was doing it at a time when not many of us were allowed to have the opportunity to do it. So I'm sorry for his family and, and everyone who knew him. Yeah, I went back and watched Higher Learning again, and I found myself 
quite frankly, stunned at how much he predicted our future. If you go back and you watch this film, made in 1995, he tackles white supremacy and the radicalizing of young white men. He is covering mass shootings in a school setting. He's covering racist iconography because the school in there is named Columbus University and there's a statue of Columbus and they talk about that in there. He's talking about campus protests. He covers Me Too and sexual assault. He covers LGBTQ issues. He covers love. He covers relationships between Black men and women. He covers policing in that film. I mean, the amount of stuff that he covered in 95, it is literally our reality right now. You know, I randomly interviewed John Singleton at ComplexCon, the first year of ComplexCon. He was supposed to be interviewed by a rapper who got hurt, like, right before the interview. So they were like, hey, DeRay, you know, we know you can interview people. Will you come do it? So I did it. And I sit down to talk to him, and I'll never forget one of the questions that we had prepped. The first one was really random. It was like, why is Tyrese in so many of your movies? And he was like, you know, Tyrese asked me to make him famous, and I said I would. And I was like, okay, that's simple. <laughs> that is great. I also asked him about Rosewood because Rosewood was one of the first movies that I remember as a kid. It was a movie I watched a million times. I cried. I'll never forget when one of the characters, main characters, dies. Like, it's still a scene that I think about all the time. And he was like, you know, it was universally panned. People thought he was racist. People thought he was being dramatic. Like, people were really, really frustrated with him. And, like, he did it anyway. And he had this whole thing about the importance of telling black stories. And Rosa was a story about a town in Florida that got burned to the ground by white people, essentially because a white woman lied on a black man. And, and he told that story so beautifully. And it was heartbreaking. It still is an incredible film. If you've not seen it, please go see it. And the third thing I asked him was, like, what was it like to be so successful so soon, so early? in his life and he was like you know it was really hard it was hard to bounce back after that success so early because in some ways it felt like he would never be that successful again in some ways like that was the new bar for him and it was a really good conversation about how we can appreciate the things that we achieve and not be defined solely about those achievements and he grew and obviously did, did way more things afterwards um, but he was really reflective about that and I thought that was really powerful. It was the combination of bringing some of the best and most powerful actors and actresses and even musicians. You think about Poetic Justice, you had you know, Janet Jackson, you had Tupac, some of the best people of their time. And bringing them together with storylines that really reflected some of the predominant sort of themes and social issues that were happening, particularly happening to black people at the time and, and indeed continue to be happening and to be resonant today. And I think that there was a unique power in that. So my news is focused on New York City, which this past week became the first major city to make phone calls free from jail. The city council last year passed a measure to do this, but it went into effect this past week. What it means is that people in jail in New York City will be able to make calls every three hours anywhere in the United States for up to 21 minutes each for free per call. This is really, really important. Uh, we've talked about how calls from jails and prisons impose a substantial financial burden on not only people who are incarcerated, but family members who are incarcerated who have to pay oftentimes a dollar or more per minute to talk to a loved one. And New York is leading the way on this. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this impacts other cities and contributes to that conversation. Just uh, really quickly, this change just happened, but we've already seen an uptick in calls from New York City jails after this policy went into effect. In fact, there's been a 38% increase in calls from jails in New York City in the days since this policy went into effect. So already we're seeing it lead to an increase in the connectedness between folks who are incarcerated and loved ones who are on the outside. And as we know in the research that that connectedness is really important to helping folks reintegrate into society once they're released. So good news from New York City, and I hope to see more of it uh, in other places across the country. The issue of connectedness is something that we don't talk about often enough. I was listening to State of Opportunity on Michigan Radio a long time ago, a number of years, and they talked about what they called a crisis of relationships, and that if you are cut off from the people that you love and or it is very difficult to access the folks that either give you support mentally, emotionally, and that help give you access for when you are trying to reenter society, if you don't maintain those relationships, you indeed experience a crisis in your life, right? So on the one hand, 
we know that being cut off from your relationships is reminiscent of abuse, that when abusers are trying to control their victims, that they do so in part by cutting them off from family members, cutting them off from their networks. We also know on top of that, that all of us have networks that we've used to get jobs, that we've used to find apartments, that we've used to even meet the people that we're in relationships with. And if you don't have that stuff when you come out of jail, those networks that you and I so easily take for granted are just not available to you. So I'm glad to see that this happened. I really do hope that it starts a trend. And I think that this is a a pretty simple way to actually honor the humanity of people who are incarcerated. Another way that human connection is so important is people visiting prisons and jails in the personal way and in a physical way. But the reality, though, is is for folks who have visited jails and prisons before, you know that there's a lot of inconsistency with regard to the enforcement of certain rules. And so, like, every time I show up to a jail or prison, I have to be prepared for the fact that, like, whoever is on duty, whoever the correction officer is there might be implementing rules around dress code, around what I can and can't bring in, around what sort of documentation I need in ways that are not consistent with maybe previous iterations or previous visits that I've had. And so that makes it difficult and it serves as a disincentive for a lot of people to come physically. Additionally, there's a lot of sort of humiliating and invasive searches that happen when you visit, especially for a lot of women. Oftentimes, like certain bras you can't wear because of the sort of metal. And there are so many things that serve as a disincentive for people to visit people in jail and prison in the first place, which, you know, obviously we need to make those rules more consistent, make their enforcement more consistent, make it so that people know what they need or don't need when they come. But I think this is another reason why the phone call piece is so important, right? Like whether it be costs, whether it be the invasiveness, whatever the reason may be, it is so important for people to have another means of communicating and to not feel as if that communication is contingent upon whether or not they have enough money to stay in touch with their family. Because research shows again and again and again, the most important thing you can do to reduce recidivism is make sure that people have strong familial and social ties once they are released. And the way that people maintain those strong ties is to be in constant communication with people while they're incarcerated. So this is a long time overdue. I know Connecticut is considering a bill to make phone calls in their prison free. Um, let's make sure you call your representatives in Connecticut if you live there and push them to support that uh, legislation. But this is great news coming out of New York City. I might be saying that because I was going to talk about Connecticut. Connecticut is in talks to in charging people for calls from prison. It's currently about $5 for 15 minutes. Some of the highest rates for phone calls from prison in the country. And one of the reasons why... It's not passing as quickly as people thought it would pass in Connecticut is because, and this is the part of the scheme that you aren't told, is that prisons actually benefit from the fees themselves. So most of the states actually don't own the phones. We covered this way long ago on the pod. Private companies own the phones and they administer the fees. Prisons have an incentive to go with the private companies because they get sort of a kickback. So they will get a couple million dollars a year from charging people so much money to be incarcerated. And what some legislators, the Republicans in Connecticut are saying, is that they need that revenue to keep parts of state government open. And it's like, what does it mean that we are running parts of state government on the back of charging already poor people more money for things that they should not have to pay for, like phone calls from prison? We know that it's already really expensive all across the country. I'm hopeful that there'll be more cities to join in, like New York City. And if you live in Connecticut, make sure you push your local elected officials to make the change. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart. Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. 
two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. On July 8th, 2010, a jury in the Bay Area reached a verdict in the case of Officer Johannes Mercilly. He was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and of a gun enhancement. He was not found guilty of second-degree murder or voluntary manslaughter, which were also charges that he was facing. This is the officer that killed Oscar Grant at Fruitvale Station over a decade ago. This, of course, was a very rare conviction, even though it was a partial conviction. He was sentenced to two years with double credit for time served. The judge overturned the gun enhancement conviction, which would have added three to 10 years to his sentence. He was released from prison at 12.01 a.m. on June 13th, 2011. Why am I bringing this up today? It's because in California, a new law was passed. It was SB 1421, and it's essentially a new police transparency law. That meant that old documents from old investigations had to be released to the public, including the investigation of Officer Mercilly. So here's what we now know 10 years later. We know that the story that Officer Mercilly told was that he accidentally reached his firearm because he was really trying to reach for his taser and that he shot Grant by accident. This is why that involuntary manslaughter charge and conviction really matters. But what we know and what apparently Bart has known for 10 years is that they were not able to interview Officer Mercilly, but they were able to look at close-up enhanced viewings of the video documentation of the killing of Oscar Grant. And it shows that this officer was indeed intending to pull his firearm and not his taser the entire time. That means that the officer lied and that even though a partial conviction was more than what we usually get, it still does not seem to be aligned with the truth of what happened to Oscar Grant in his death. 
Oscar Grant was shot in the back um, with a single round by Officer Mercilee and died thereafter. This means that BART and other city officials in the Bay Area knew for over a decade that there had been a complete miscarriage of justice and that what was said to have happened wasn't actually what happened. They knew this entire time. And it took the changing of a law for us to actually know this as the public over 10 years later. I'm completely frustrated and completely disgusted. I'm grateful for the passage of this law, but this feels like a re-traumatization of a moment that people have been trying to move past for over 10 years now. We're finally learning what happened in this case, which was you know, a major national high-profile case that happened 10 years ago. We're finally learning you know, these crucial details now. And yet, you know, when you look at SB 1421, which is the law that made these records public, it only really makes public a small fraction of the total universe of police misconduct that's out there. And what SB 1421 did is it made public all records of either use of force that results in death or serious injury uh, or another firearms discharge, even if it didn't cause death or serious injury. And it also made public sustained allegations of sexual assault and allegations of officer dishonesty and perjury. So when you look at how many cases per year that involves, it tends to be about 600 to 700 cases of deaths or serious injuries in California each year that would be made public under this. And when you talk about sustained complaints of, let's say, sexual assault or perjury, when you look in California, fewer than one in 13 complaints are sustained. So 12 out of 13 of those complaints, you actually don't get access to those records. And all of the other types of misconduct out there, misconduct that doesn't cause death or serious injury or misconduct that doesn't fall within those two categories, that's still secret, right? That's still prohibited from being released to the public. And so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And I think what this illustrates, and in particular what we're learning about the officer who killed Oscar Grant, is that there's just so much information that's being hidden from the public. And I'm hopeful that legislators in California will take up subsequent legislation to make available the full degree of misconduct that's happening in the state. Because you know, if we're paying for the police officer salaries, we're paying to support these police departments through our tax base, Like we at minimum need to have access to information to be able to effectively hold those institutions accountable. And indeed, in many states, even you know, very Republican states, states in the South, I mean, all of these records are public record. Uh, and yet in a progressive state, like California, it still remains a secret. I spent a part of this past week at the National Museum of African American History and Culture here in D.C. for some research. And, and I went to the Emmett Till exhibit again, which is, if you haven't been, uh, one of the most powerful exhibits in a very powerful museum. And I am thinking about that in relation to this just because it was revealed, I think, last year or a few years ago that the woman who made the claim against Emmett Till that he whistled at her and made verbal and physical advances toward her, it was revealed that the sort of most sensational parts of her story weren't true and that she lied about them. And I'm thinking about how those lies shaped generations of interpretations and understandings of what transpired in that event and like ultimately what resulted in the death of Emmett. And I'm just thinking about the sort of lineage of falsehoods that Black people have been on the receiving end of, whether interpersonally or institutionally, that shape narratives around both the victim and the perpetrator, and how so many of those narratives are grounded in lies. And I think that, you know, we can't disentangle what happened to Oscar Grant from the sort of longer lineage of what has happened to Black men and women at the hands of police, at the hands of mob violence, at the hands of those who deem them disposable and who believe that they should be able to get away with it. So just thinking about the sort of longer historical tradition, unfortunately, in which this such a revelation is a part of. Now, the wildest part of this story to me is is to think about how many people knew in the government because they had access to the report and how many people knew when Bart was spending all that money to defend this officer, all that money to go to court and litigate this when they knew he was lying? And it's why sunshine laws exist. It's, it's this idea that the public can hold institutions accountable in a way that they'll never hold themselves accountable. So I'm happy that the transparency laws got passed in California. 
Uh, but like Sam noted, they aren't even the most transparent that they could be. And you think about cities all across the country, we have no clue what's happening, no clue on the discipline with people that get to legally kill citizens in the name of safety. That is sort of wild. And, you know, people often say to us, we're being dramatic about the police. And what we remind them is that the issue is dramatic, that a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is killed by a police officer. That, that in and of itself is dramatic. But you think about, like, what a cover-up this was. And if this information wasn't released in this fashion, we'd never know. And it also obviously makes you think about all the other cases, all the other times where not only do we have questions, and, you know, people call us conspiracy theorists, and we would say the conspiracy is actually real, and, and you see it in this case, but think about all the other cases where they're real questions, and investigators have investigated, and they have come to a conclusion that we literally aren't able to look at. The police are the last public institution where the thought of accountability is seen as anathema to the institution itself. And we got to really push that, y'all, that like there should be no public institution that is beyond the purview of public accountability. So for my news, five years ago, Barnes & Noble announced that it was closing the only branch that it had opened in the Bronx. And at this time, it was the only bookstore that existed in the Bronx. And at that point, residents and local civic leaders were angry and heartbroken, and they fought to save it and and were successful for keeping it open for another two or so years. But five years ago, it closed for good. And just to compare, at the time, there were 90 bookstores in Manhattan. But in the Bronx, there was just one. And then five years ago, it disappeared. And the Bronx is a population of 1.5 million people with 200,000 public school students that is majority Black and Latinx. And there was a single bookstore. And then for five years, there were no bookstores. Luckily, that is not the case anymore. There is, thanks to Noel Santos, a bookstore that is coming back to the Bronx so that the Bronx has at least one bookstore, which hopefully will be the first of many, and is called The Lit Bar, uh, which started truly by Noel saying, this is absurd, that there's zero bookstores in the Bronx. And she started a, a crowdfunding campaign, which was called appropriately, Let's Bring a Goddamn Bookstore to the Bronx, which I think accurately captures the sentiment and emotion that many of us would feel if we found out there was no bookstore in an entire borough. And she quickly raised almost $200,000 and has used that and has completely changed careers and switched over to being a full-time bookstore owner. And so the bookstore recently opened, and my hope is that people will will go to this bookstore, will support it, that authors will tell their publishers to send them there. And for me, it was a reminder. One, I think I was deeply unsettled by the fact that the Bronx did not have a single bookstore for half a decade. And then another piece of it is that I'm, I'm just so proud. I don't know Noelle, but I'm, I'm so proud and so grateful for her work in making sure that she is not allowing the Bronx to exist as a book desert, as people often call it, in the same way that we think about food deserts. And it's making me think just generally about how we support or don't support bookstores. And there was a great thread from Raven Bookstore, um, who's this independent bookstore that went viral maybe a week or so ago. And I, I just want to read a piece of it because I think it was really helpful for me as someone who often does buy books from Amazon for their convenience or for the sake of convenience, I think it was helpful for me to remember what sort of decision I'm making there. So I'm just going to read part of that. So essentially, Raven was responding to someone who was saying that they could get a book for $15 online that cost $26.99 in the store. Um, And this is how they responded. When we order direct from our publishers, we get a wholesale discount of 46% off the cover price. The book in question had a cover price of $26.99, meaning our cost for that book from publishers would be $14.57. If we sold it for $15, we would make $0.43. It goes without saying that we cannot operate making $0.43 per book sold. We have 10,000 books in stock. If we sold every single one of them for $0.43 markup, we'd make enough to keep the store open for about six days. The biggest and cheapest online booksellers have lots of other revenue streams that are much more profitable than books, so they can stand to lose money on books. They also are much more likely to get better discounts from publishers because they sell at a higher volume. Fair enough. But remember what those online booksellers have no interest in doing. They have no interest in bringing your favorite authors to town so you can meet them and get their books signed. They have no interest in creating jobs in your community, in partnering with cultural organizations in your town to enrich the art feeding and taking care of store cats that you can take pictures with and pet. Uh, Shout out to the store cats. Creating a safe and comfortable space for you to spend an hour or two, working to support local authors where you live, hosting open mics, supporting emerging authors, and paying our taxes. I think this was just a reminder for me to be intentional about where I'm purchasing my books, who I'm supporting when I make that decision, and that like 
that is a political choice, right? Like how and where and when I decide to spend money on books is shaping whether or not a borough will have a bookstore. It is shaping whether independent bookstores will stay open. And so I say this as a means of holding myself accountable to attempting to be more thoughtful and intentional around who I purchase my books from and thinking about what am I sacrificing for the convenience of one click. You know, in addition to all of that, I'm, I'm also reminded uh, about the value of, of bookstores, especially independent bookstores, as a, a center for communities to learn things they might not be able to learn by shopping at a Barnes & Noble, to be exposed to ideas and perspectives and community events and authors coming in to talk about the book. So all of these things provide an additional value beyond just the book itself that you may be interested in purchasing. So it's really important, as you said, Clint, to support independent bookstores in particular in your community and it's incredible to see, you know, the power of folks who really care about this uh, to be able to leverage, you know, digital tools, crowdfunding, to be able to bring in resources to sustain that spirit and to open bookstores and communities that didn't have it before. You know, I, it also made me think of that Joni Mitchell song that you don't know what you got till it's gone. Growing up, I would leave elementary school and there was an independent bookstore, Left Bank Books, not far from my school. And often we would go there because in an age before Amazon and frankly, before Barnes and Noble, that was one of the few places my father could actually find books on his chosen practice of black liberation theology. It was one of the very few places that featured authors and voices that are not featured in the mainstream. And so this was kind of like the era of Borders books. And you couldn't find that stuff at Borders books. You couldn't get on Amazon and find the obscure stuff. So you had to go to a place like Left Bank. And if they didn't have it, then you could talk to the owner and they would consider ordering it for you. But then, of course, as I got older and we entered an age of even more convenience, I got really used to, like you said, Clint, that one click. I'm trying to be better about that one click, knowing that often that one click means a lot of packaging and plastics and cardboard and things like that that we should be trying to use less of. And that buying local is not just supporting your local economy. It's not just supporting local authors and lesser known authors. It's also about supporting the environment. Yeah, sometimes you really can't find it and you need to hop on the internet or sometimes you know that the money's going more directly to the author if you do it that way. But it's a really great thing to peruse your local bookstore to build some relationships there um, and to see what you can find because you may just find yourself surprised. Now, the thing that's interesting is that when you look at the data, independent bookstores are thriving. So when Amazon came on the scene, it's true that all types of bookstores took a hit. Independent bookstores took a hit. Brick and mortar bookstores. You remember Borders, like Borders is gone. Borders is no more. But the thing is, is that independent bookstores actually bounce back. And when you look at the data from 2009 to today, independent bookstores have seen a 40% increase. So it's sort of a myth that independent bookstores aren't doing well and aren't thriving in this current environment. And part of it is the personalization of the experience, the access, the community feel, all of those things. But I was actually surprised to see the data about how independent bookstores are actually growing across the country and also surprised, as everybody else was, about how there was just no bookstore in the Bronx. Who knew? So my news is about John Kelly. John Kelly was chief of staff. Do you remember when John Kelly got hired? Everybody was like, he's going to be a moderating force on Trump. He's going to be the one to like hold Trump accountable and make sure there's sanity in the White House. Well... Shocker, that didn't happen. John Kelly left and became a board member of Caliburn International, the parent company of Comprehensive Health Services, the only private company operating shelters in the immigration space. And they became one of the most dominant players in the entire industry. So I was reading this article from CBSNews.com, and it said that last August, it secured three licenses for facilities in Texas, totaling 500 beds. And in December, the Homestead facility began expanding from a capacity of 1,250 beds to 3,200 beds. In the facility that's located on the Air Reserve Base, that is the nation's only site not subject to routine inspections by state child welfare experts. So for context, they run the facilities that they said are like slumber parties for young people who are detained by ICE. And you know that it's not a slumber party if you are locked in a space and can't leave. It's not a slumber party if you've been taken away forcibly from your family. It's not a slumber party if your basic needs aren't even met. And it's not a slumber party, certainly, if it's not even staffed by people who have any knowledge or expertise working with young people. And John Kelly leaves the White House and now he's making money from the very apparatus that was designed to harm immigrants and young people and people of color. 
it reminds me of two things. One is follow the money. That money is always a motivator when we think about the worst things that are happening in society. And the second is that we don't need to assume the best in this administration in any capacity because we've never seen the best in this administration. We haven't seen people do good while they're there and leave and do good. We've seen people be really self-serving in the moment and then they leave and are even more self-serving. And that's what happened with John Kelly. So I wanted to bring that here. This actually follows a trend that people just kind of assume is going to happen and we frankly take for granted and don't discuss very often. But usually when people leave positions of import in Washington, ex-appointed officials, ex-elected officials, former Congress people, they will often enter the very industry that they were just responsible for regulating. So we know that folks who sat on energy and commerce then can become lobbyists for oil companies or what we know is that they become consultants and not lobbyists because there's laws against becoming a lobbyist and there are laws against who you can talk to and maintain relationships with after you've just come off the hill. So this actually happens all the time. This is particularly egregious, though, for reasons that should be obvious to us all. And this is a reminder that the cruelty is the point. That, yes, the guy that we said was going to be the voice of reason that was going to bring order to the chaos, he brought order, but still for the sake of wrong, still for the sake of evil, still for the sake of capitalism, no matter who is suffering because of it, still for the sake of America first and immigrants be damned. And so I don't care if it's chaotic or orderly. If it's racist, it's a problem. It is profoundly upsetting to see people who participated in the caging of children, people who participated in the destruction of any semblance of norms, decency, and certainly justice of our executive branch. I mean, and to see those people who often came in under the pretense of like, they are going to rein in a wayward president, and to see people who were complicit in that to see them come out of this and benefit book deals and TV deals and lucrative K Street contracts and board positions. I mean, it is, I think it is a reminder for me that the suffering that this administration has enacted on millions and millions of people, for some people, it doesn't impact them at all. For some people, it remains an abstraction. And I think that that's telling about where we are and and who is or isn't impacted. And the last part I'll say about this is that I, I know this is true because the people who didn't like Trump at the beginning, all the super wealthy donors who were like, oh, Trump, we don't like Trump. We're not going to support him. We're not going to donate to him. We're doing too much. Now that they are benefiting materially, financially from a Trump administration that has made it so they pay less taxes, that has made it so that they are making more money than ever, all those folks are now donating to the Trump re-election campaign and forgetting any like moral reticence that they might have had. So it's upsetting. So seeing John Kelly profit off of the system that he helped construct of, you know, an expanded universe of detention centers and more and more immigrants being detained for longer periods of time sort of parallels the ways in which the system in general is structured to profit off of immigrant detention and indeed mass incarceration writ large. So I'm reminded that the census, according to the census's rules, uh, as currently stands, they're going to be counting folks who are detained in these immigrant detention centers as part of the population of those local communities for the purposes of inflating the representation and political power of state and local legislators from those predominantly rural white areas that will then implement policies that make the problem even worse, right? And so all of this is compounded. It's not just John Kelly profiting off of the system he helped build, but in fact, there are a whole universe of people, particularly in rural white communities and more conservative communities that will profit off of this politically and economically. And that is exactly the type of structure that needs to be dismantled. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All 
All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And now my interview with Brian Lee Jr., who's an architect and design justice advocate. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, we met a while ago, and I've always been fascinated. It took us forever to get you on the pod, but happy you're here. You're an architect who focuses on issues of justice. Can you talk about like what led you to architecture as like the way that you engage in the work in the world? Yeah, certainly. So I grew up as a military child. My mother moved from place to place every two to three years. And so as a family, we would end up in various places across the country. And at one point, we moved to Sicily and Comiso, Sicily. And part of that experience was really about kind of experiencing a new place in a new way that was outside of the American context. And it opened my eyes directly to what it meant to have social and communal spaces be a a core part of the kind of experience of existing in a city. And so when I moved back to Trenton, New Jersey, and lived with my grandmother, what you could easily and quickly realize is that there's a dissonance between those two conditions, right? And that space in Trenton, New Jersey was affecting, and you could see that it was affecting my grandmother and our family in different ways. And I, I really just wanted to create a space that was much more endearing and considerate of the people that existed within it. And so from that time forward, I asked, you know, what does it mean to create a space like that? And my parents said that it was it was architecture. And that kind of led me down a path that has been consistent since I was about 10 years old. And you talk about yourself as somebody engaged in design justice. What does that mean? I get this a lot because mostly it was made up. You have to speak some things into existence in order to kind of do this type of work, right? I mean, it's not as though it just started today. There are a hundred years of people who have done this type of work. But the core definition for us is that we are challenging the privilege and power structures that use architecture and design as a means to perpetuate injustice throughout the built environment. With the acknowledgement that for every injustice in this world, there is an architecture that has been built to facilitate and perpetuate. And so if we acknowledge that there are spaces that are facilitating our oppression, that are facilitating our dehumanization, that are facilitating continued systemic injustice, then we are actually going to do better if we know how to deconstruct those. The second part of that is that we have to stratify the design profession. We have to actually look at who gets to make decisions, what the process looks like to make decisions, and at what phase do people have input into the way that their places and spaces get developed. And then the last thing is really, how do we see design as an opportunity for envisioning our space, when I say our space, our collective spaces, as spaces that are lifting our humanity in some version, in some way. And so I think with those three things combined, challenging systems, making sure that we are stratifying and bringing and organizing people within the practice itself, and then designing with a core sense of liberation and freedom at its base and justice at its base, the better work we will do. And I actually think the the better our neighborhoods, our cities will become. It seems like a big claim to say that every injustice that shows up in the world is sort of hardwired and reinforced in the built environment. What are some examples of that? We often ask people about climate change, right? So when we talk about 49% of all issues around climate change, right? are a direct result of the built environment, of architecture itself. 71% are directly resultant of the built environment and its, its kind of peripheral components. So 
if we want to make a, a core change around environmental racism, if we want to make core changes around climate justice or climate action in general, we have to look at the thing that spews the most particulate and the most issues into the air itself. And so that's one thing. I often look at this picture by Gordon Parks, 1958, Alabama. It's a picture of a uh, a young woman standing next to a young child, standing underneath a colored entrance sign. And the conversation is really around complicity in the built environment, right? So there's an artist who built that sign, who turned the glass, put the neon uh, in the sign, hung the sign, stood there with pride, and was entirely and utterly complicit in the expectation of the building that existed right there, which was to segregate people and dehumanize people through the physical environment. I heard you before talk about streets and the way streets were designed as like an example of this. Can you help us understand the way streets are designed? There are ways in which we have developed our cities that either accommodate humanity, accommodate the people that exist within a space, or accommodate the efficacy of space. So cars and other larger scale pieces that separate people. And so if we focus on cars, then we get streets that are extremely wide and are really about the thoroughfare itself. It's about the car occupying that space. But for a long time, for most of humanity's history, we've seen the streets as public space, right? And so what you start to notice when you walk through European cities or, or African cities, Latin American cities, cities that have a, a history over 500 years, you start to see that the streets were much, much tighter. And that tightness actually, uh, and that ratio between the buildings on those streets and the width of the streets actually starts to compress and give more opportunity for people to engage, right? So it creates a more communal environment just by the nature of the streets themselves. And so when we think about how the layout of cities exists today, we actually have to consider the fact that we are creating systems that automatically institutionalize a detachment of people in place, and so we have to reconvene the idea that the streets are for people as much as they are for cars. And in doing so, we start to restitch a fabric of community that is centered on kind of early American colonialist ideas of manifest destiny as one singular lot is yours. And that is the ideal American condition rather than our collective condition is the one that is more valued. How does the design of streets influence the way we think of community? What is that like in practice? So I think the development of streets is really about the permeability or the connection of people in those spaces. And humans have this tendency that we refer to our built environment pretty much every 30 or 40 steps. And we're trying to check our references. So we're looking at things. This is why store windows put up clothing and all their, their kind of products and windows is that as we walk down streets, we need cues. We need visual cues. And so those little things about how far I'm willing to walk means that I can create communities that people are able to walk a little further to get groceries or to go to school. Those little opportunities to have the checkpoints of stores along the way actually means that people stop and engage in the built environment rather than just passing through. So when we think about the design of streets as a contemporary condition, we want to start to think about them as moments of opportunity for people to continue to have civic and communal discourse in the built environment. Now, you started an organization called Colocate. Why'd you name it as such? And what's your goal? Well, it's a beautiful definition in the first place. The actual term for Colocate is wrapped around two words that we combine together. One, colloquial, so the sophisticatedly informal use of formal language or formal precedent, and location. So the informal language of place is essentially what co-locate means. And for us, what we are looking at doing, again, we're a design justice-centered practice. What we're looking at doing is organizing, advocating, and designing for racial, social, and cultural equity. And, and I know that's like a tagline-y type of thing, but ultimately our work requires us to consider the way we organize and bring people into the process of design. And then not just that we organize folks, but that we have material 
output in terms of advocacy in that environment. So we are talking explicitly about education policy or public space policies or water rights. All of these things actually come through the work. And then the last thing is just our ability to translate that, to be interpreters of uh, the communities that we are part of and the communities that we serve to translate that or interpret that into a design that responds appropriately. And so I think our, our job is to always, always, always bring our family, our community in with us through this process and to create better spaces with an idea towards racial, social, and cultural justice in place. You could do this work anywhere. So why New Orleans? And how do we try to change the, the profession of architecture? Like, are there enough people of color who are architects, enough women? Like, is the pipeline the problem? Like, how do we start to do that? It's New Orleans because this is the city that we all fell in love with. This is the city that we care about. This is the city that we are a part of on a day-in, day-out basis. And I think in order to do work as a design justice practice, you have to be not just on the periphery of community, you actually have to be of and in a community consistently. And so New Orleans proper for most of our work because we are here and this is our home. But I think because New Orleans, the issues that we see uh, around the country are not masked here. They are visible, daily, consistent, and we are able to touch, see, feel them because of the scale of this city We are approximately 390,000 people, give or take. And it means that everyone essentially knows everyone. And so when we think about the issues that impact our city, we can always reach out within a few minutes and be sitting at a coffee shop with somebody to have this conversation about what what it is we want to do. I think what makes New Orleans particularly interesting is that post-Katrina, this city was planned out. Literally every group who did planning across the country came here, descended on the city, did a planning project, did a report, and then left. And there are a lot of people who went through that kind of misguided training camp of how to consider their city through the eyes of a a planner or an architect, but haven't necessarily had the opportunity to to have agency in the change that they want to see. And so there are a lot of people as design advocates who are not architects who didn't want to go to college to do this, but care deeply about their physical environment, are willing to speak up, who are willing to participate, who are willing to be a part of of this push around design justice. And so New Orleans is a particularly good gumbo for that to take place. The other consideration to your second question about Black architects, how do we kind of change the profession? One of the first things uh, we did, when I, especially when I moved to New Orleans, and we started a program called Project Pipeline in the city that was uh, derivative of a, a larger program for the National Organization of Minority Architects. One of the first stats that we would always read is that there are less than 20 licensed African-American architects in the state of Louisiana, wow. in the entire state. Right. So you're talking millions and millions of people. And so anytime you have that few of a representative cause, you are deficient in folks who have the opportunity to be connected to the community. It doesn't mean that our training always makes us the best fit for jobs. What it means is that our history and our connection to community actually plays a big part in the trust of communities that have historically been disconnected from the power to self-determine their place in space. That number exists essentially across the country. We're 1%, uh, 1.5% of the total architectural population, African-American women, a little over 400 in the entire country. And you can see the same in Latino, Latinx um, communities as well, and indigenous peoples, right? And so the communities that have historically been uh, oppressed through physical space over time also are the communities who have been disconnected and pushed out of the architectural profession at large, in part because we seek to do work that impacts community in a larger way. And the process of designing and building buildings does not allow for it. 
So when you ask, what can we do? I think the big part is, A, hold architects accountable. When you see, uh, when we talk about architecture in the world, we actually don't really ever mention their name unless they are the David Ajays of the world, the, the kind of star architects, right? Uh, but our argument is oftentimes that it's not really about diversity. It's not, it's actually about justice and equity. And diversity and inclusion are a byproduct of justice and equity. The planning process at the city level is just so random. Like, I wouldn't know about it at all if I didn't happen to grow up and know somebody who's on the planning commission. Like, how do people even get involved if they are interested in these ideas of design justice? So the big thing I would say is start small. Find the planning committee meeting or the design advisory committee meeting or something at the city planning level that allows you to understand the process. The first thing is to actually get in a room with with more than one architect. Most people I ask don't know any architects. So, you know, if you want to know architects, look up your NOMA chapter in your community, the National Organization of Minority Architects. There are 30 to 40 chapters across the country connected to your city planning office and understand what people are putting into the world and what the process is. Uh, And then ultimately, Don't be afraid to challenge the way that those meetings or the way that architecture gets built in your community. The ask is actually direct. What are you doing in those meetings to push this project towards the explicit needs of the community you are serving? If you can ask those questions in those meetings, you're actually going to start to challenge the way in which architects show up to those meetings, the way in which they operate before they get there. And then ultimately, we will have a a profession that is actually considering the way in which they interact with our communities in a more direct way. We think about the removal of the monuments all across the country definitely is an issue of the way design shows up in public conversation. I think that for so many people was the first time that issues of design became really public. As an architect, what was your take on the monument conversation in New Orleans and around the country? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've been doing work on monuments, memorials, museums for a decade. We have to understand our communal spaces as social and democratic spaces. These are spaces in which we honor and think through the values that we have for ourselves as a collective. And so if we think about these spaces dishonoring what we value as collectives, then we have a better chance of actually remediating these sites long-term and actually creating spaces and places that enhance and lift and amplify public voice, that amplify the democratic voice of our community and speak to the values that we insist are uh, a part of our uh, political conversations. There are a lot of people who feel like we were overreacting, right? That like, you know, nobody puts a lot of faith in monuments anyway. A lot of people didn't know that they were there in the first place. Like, that it was just people needing something to be outraged by uh, and that we actually like brought more attention to the Confederacy by fighting about it than if people had just ignored them or just like hadn't paid attention. Or there were people who were like, we shouldn't remove them. We should put up plaques that like highlight the true history, but like it doesn't warrant removal. What do you say about those two things? I actually had somebody at a conference a few months back who essentially said, you know, the Confederacy won, so we should keep these things up. And this was like his earnest opinion. And what we heard out of that was that he envisioned the Confederacy winning the propaganda war. And that's dangerous because we've now let propaganda around racism and xenophobia and just the kind of core premises of white supremacy to exist in place for such a long time. And so if that is the thing that is staring you in the face every single day, in your public spaces, in your city, it makes every part of your city less hospitable. It makes every part of your conversation with your physical environment less hospitable. And so the conversation was not simply about these individual pieces that didn't have a real reference. It's actually that you've got whole cities that are grounded on white supremacist kind of ideology, as as is most of the country. And so we actually have to remove that. We have to remediate the site if we actually want to live into what we espouse to be our better natures. You know, you actually have to envision and push forward an occupation of space that 
holds the values that you consider, the best thing that we can do is to envision and occupy more and more space in the name of the values that we proclaim and hold that space. Because oftentimes those who who go out and protest, those who are out in the streets understand the fact that in some part we are trying to hold physical space to declare a conversation, to declare uh, a stance, a position on something. But when we are done, then we we dissipate and that space becomes available again. And, And if we can build spaces, if we can reclaim spaces or build new spaces that hold the values that we proclaim, then we can move towards the next step and we can build on that next step. One of the questions that I ask everybody is, what do you say to people who are losing hope, who are like, you know what, we tried, we did everything we're supposed to do, we voted, we protested, we went to the rally, we called, we testified, and things haven't changed. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I got a friend who often says, uh, Sarah Mo, who generally says that uh, we don't protest because we want to stay angry. We protest because at some point we want to be joyful. We want to find happiness. And uh, that's part of this is that this fight is not so that we can maintain a activist industrial complex. It's not so that we can hold on to this anger forever. It's actually so that we can build and envision a, a more beautiful, more free, more liberated world. And the only way to do that is to sit in that vision, right? So I encourage people to imagine, to think about the ways in which we can see the other side. Uh, And the thing about design is that it is explicitly about envisioning the other side. It's about envisioning the ways in which the interactions between one human and the other can be better. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? (laughs) You know, everybody's your mentor, right? I think, uh, you know, everyone you meet has something to offer. So, when you meet somebody, be open to those conversations being extended in person, online, however it may come to you. But see mentorship, see kinship, see brotherhood and sisterhood in all of your interactions. And if, if you can do that, you can actually learn quicker and much more through that process. Well, thank you. And uh, we look forward to having you back on Posse the People. Anytime, man. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.